guests to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. On this day of all saints, soften our hearts toward all that is different. Open our eyes to see your teachers who are all around us. Amen. And please be seated. We are currently in a sermon series that is exploring our church's values. In light of all that we've been facing, it's our sincere hope here at Pearl that our values can reground and retether us. It's our sincere hope here at Pearl that our values can cast an elevated vision for the kind of life that we desire to live no matter what we face in this world. And so far, we've covered our values of gratitude, inclusion, renewal, peace, transformation, and integration, which have been our six values for several years now. And this morning, we'll consider a new value that our oversight and pastoral teams have been thinking about and talking about for months and months now, which is equity. Equity. Equity and equality are sometimes words that get used interchangeably, but they are, in fact, different words. To be clear, both equity and equality are beautiful words. They both gesture toward necessary work in today's world, but they're not the same work. One helpful distinction between equity and equality is that equality primarily asks, is this, whatever this is, is this equal for everyone who is involved? Whereas equity primarily asks, is everyone getting what they need? So equal versus everyone getting what they need. Of course, equality in some situations may be the equitable thing to do, and yet not always. And so here's an example. A small child, like, like a little, little baby, and a 35-year-old man might both be terribly, tragically hungry. But they do not need the same kind of food, nor do they need the same amount of food in order to be fed. And so equity is constantly looking at situations and systems and moments that are not fair nor good. And equity discerns a way forward that is equitable which is to say everyone involved in the unfair or not good situation, system, or moment receives that which they truly need, even if it's different from what someone else might need in the exact same unfair and not so good situation, system, or moment. Now, equity, similar to the word integration, isn't a word that Jesus ever speaks And yet equity, very much like integration, is a way of being that we bear witness to in the life of Jesus. So here are a few examples. Children were trying to make their way to Jesus, and the disciples tried very hard to stop them. This was because Jesus was a grown man. Jesus was a grown man, and he was important, and he was busy, and kids, especially in Jesus' time, were not as valued as adults. 
And so uh, the disciples said to the kids, no, no, you, you can't get to Jesus. You can't see Jesus. And Jesus responds, let the children come. And he lets them actually sit upon his lap. He is in a very real way enacting equity on behalf of children. Another example, a bleeding woman, a leper, Both were considered unclean in Jesus' time, and anyone who touched them would also become unclean. And yet, often, when Jesus encountered people who were unclean according to religious law, he wouldn't just speak, be healed. I mean, he could do that. He often did that. But rather, when he came across people who were religiously unclean, he was often intentional to touch the unclean. It's very intentional to do that. And he was open to being touched by those who were unclean. And sometimes I wonder if that human touch was more meaningful and miraculous for the unclean than the healing itself. It was certainly an equitable act. And here's another example. Religious leaders around Jesus' time did not hang out with tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. And yet Jesus was often found at tables, sharing meals and leisurely time with those very people. It was an equitable evening with those who were told by those who were dominant in society that they could not belong because they were not good. And one more example. It's one that I haven't heard many people talk about before, but I think it fits. I think that Jesus' repentance was actually equitable. Jesus didn't walk around demanding that everyone repent from X, Y, and Z. He had no specific repentance mandate or salvation prayer that he forced upon every single person in every situation. No, he simply and perhaps we could say equitably invited every person to repent. Which meant that he trusted every person to realize their own chaos and to turn from it in order to move more deeply into their truer, better Selves. Equity for children, equity for the religiously unclean, equity for tax collectors and sinners, equity even for the ways in which individuals may need to repent in order to truly thrive in this world. And so about equity, we write, Jesus' way of love subverted stigmas and opened access in his day. Access to community, daily bread, healing, justice, and even God's own self. We therefore value equity. We grieve unfairness and barriers in our society and in our own body. We seek to upend, re-envision, and reconstruct systems in order to help foster voice, volition, and access. As I understand it, equity is core to Jesus' gospel, which he explains in Luke chapter 4. In Luke 4, Jesus entered into a synagogue, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. According to Jesus, this good news, literally gospel, this gospel that he is proclaiming is for the poor. He then continued to read from the scroll. God sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After reading these words, Jesus rolled up the scroll and said to his audience, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd, we're told, is amazed. They're amazed by the gracious words that came from Jesus' lips. Amazed. 
Isn't that a peculiar statement? I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody say that they were amazed by the graciousness of a gospel declared? Why is the crowd amazed at Jesus' gracious words? How about this? The crowd had never heard an equitable gospel. What if that's possible? I mean, the crowd knew about divine sons of God and saviors who brought about peace on earth, such as Julius Caesar. But you see, Rome's gospel employed massive power and horrifying violence to establish its peace in the world. And so in that context, Jesus' gospel was revolutionarily equitable. It's a gospel that Jesus said releases captives recovers sight, lets the oppressed go free, and proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, especially upon the least in society. Which is to say that his gospel was for, it was especially for those who endured the most inequity in his time. For this reason, as I understand it, equity is core to Jesus' gospel. Jesus' gospel must ask who is poor. Jesus' gospel must ask who is sick. Jesus' gospel must ask, who is bound up? And Jesus' gospel must ask, who is not favored? And of course, Jesus' answers to these questions may be different than our own today, and yet Jesus' gospel demands that his students continue to ask these important questions about the poor, the sick, the bound up, and the unfavored in today's society. The answers. Answers like a social safety net, Answers like access to health care. Answers like reimagining judicial and incarceration systems that do not rehabilitate, nor do they bring about human flourishing. Answers like the declaration of God's favor on the least of these in our society today. Well, this is not some spiritually watered-down progressive gospel. No, this is what it means to follow after Jesus and to truly participate in his good news as he declared it in Luke chapter And so at Pearl, we value equity. We grieve unfairness and barriers in our society and in our own body. We seek to upend, re-envision, and reconstruct systems in order to help foster voice, volition, and access. Now, to be clear, we have far to go and much to learn. One particular work that fits within equity is the work of anti-racism. At Pearl, we desire to be an anti-racist community, which is to say that we recognize that racism exists in our hearts and in our minds and in our systems. And it's to say that we are committed to learning and to growing, to having our eyes open, to having uh, our hearts opened more widely, to saying that we're sorry, to making amends, and to doing better as individuals and as a church. Anti-racism is an important, equitable work in this world. We plan to begin this work internally with an expert who will meet with our board and staff, and then we plan to continue that work with our ministry leaders, members, and church over the coming years. And to be clear, anti-racist work isn't just relevant for today, like this is some kind of, of new thing. Its need in this world is as ancient as humankind itself. We actually see this work in the life of Jesus. Now, I'm going to make a tangential point to one that Pastor Ben made a few years ago in a sermon, but, but I continue to think about it to this very day. I think it applies here. I'll be reading from Mark chapter 7. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. 
But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on bed, and the demon gone. Now this is a weird story. Uh, it's also a tricky story. It's tricky because for millennia, the Christian belief that Jesus is God has insisted that Jesus was in every way totally perfect. But the incarnation is truly a mystery. Fully God and fully human. Fully God and fully human. And yet the church has tended to emphasize Jesus' divinity much more so over Jesus' fullness as a human person. And so, for example, nobody feels very comfortable talking about Luke chapter 2, which reads, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. Question. How is it that the divine Jesus increased in wisdom? Wasn't he already fully wise? Luke chapter 2 seems to say no. It seems to say that Jesus in his humanity grew. And I personally don't think that that's scary, much the opposite, actually. You see, the church has often behaved as if it sees clearly, as if it has all of the answers, which has meant that the church has very often been unwilling to admit fault unwilling to say that it doesn't have all of the answers. Oh, but, but what if the one whom we call Lord actually grew in wisdom? What if the one whom we call Lord had his eyes at times opened? What if the one in whom we call Lord had his mind changed? Well, then perhaps we Christians wouldn't be so dogmatic in our quote-unquote capital T, capital R, capital U, capital T, capital H perhaps we wouldn't be so dogmatic in our truth. And perhaps part of following Jesus would be our ongoing growth, especially when it comes to anti-racism. Okay, let, let me explain. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus encounters a woman who is of a different ethnicity. That is to say, she isn't Jewish. And the text goes out of its way to tell us how non-Jewish she actually is. It could have just said that she was a Gentile woman. But the text actually reads, now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. It's like trying to say that she was a super Gentile. <laughs> like the opposite of anything that could possibly be Jewish. Now based on this context, Jesus interacts with this Syrophoenician Gentile woman like many Jews would have in his day. And so when she asked for help, he said to her, let the children, by which he meant Jews, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, by which he meant Gentiles. Now, about this answer, theologians try to protect Jesus' perfection by doing all kinds of gymnastics and saying all kinds of weird things, like Jesus wasn't being racist here. And Jesus was baiting this woman into realizing that she's important. She's, he's trying to get her to push back. 
Some theologians go as far as imagining that Jesus looked at this Syrophoenician woman with a twinkle of love in his eyes, just begging her to stand up for herself as he pressed her with these racial notions of his day. And unfortunately, this kind of mansplaining continues in Christianity today. Oh, we said amen at Pearl Church. Yes. Here's the logic. Jesus was perfect and Jesus is in us, which sometimes sounds like, especially from white Western Christians, I'm not racist. I didn't do anything to hurt people of color. I love everyone. I follow after Jesus. I live in the way of Jesus, which means to be perfect. Oh, but what if the one whom we call Lord actually grew in wisdom? What if, in his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman, Jesus was actually being racist, saying something that was commonly thought and said in his day? And what if this Syrophoenician woman's response did something, woke something, opened something up inside of Jesus that helped him to be less racist and more equitable? Oh my goodness. That would have profound impact on what it means to be Christian and to follow after Jesus. It would mean that we don't have to see it all clearly. In fact, we don't see it all clearly. It would mean that we have blind spots. It would mean that we need people who are different than us to be around us and to challenge us and to question us and to inspire us and to teach us. And it would mean that part of following Jesus is to become less racist, like we see in Jesus in Mark chapter 7. With all of this in mind, today is All Saints Day, about which we write, the festival of all saints celebrates the faithful women and men, known and unknown, past and present, whose lives have been marked by the love and grace of God. It's an opportunity for us as a church to thank God for them and to remember the roles that they have played in bringing God's kingdom of peace into our lives and into this world. On this day of all saints, I'd like to give thanks for Jesus' teacher, the Syrophoenician woman. People that look different and come from different places have ways of seeing and being that open another person's eyes and hearts to goodness. On this day of all saints, I'd like to give thanks for children who have so much to teach us, but who are so often undervalued. We so often assume that we open their brain and give them all of the truth, failing to realize that they have so much truth to teach us with. On this day of all saints, I'd like to give thanks for women who have been subjugated by masculine hierarchy. This world is tragically less than whole because of it. On this day of all saints, I'd like to give thanks for the houseless who teach us with every collection of tents that home cannot be restrained. On this day of all saints, I'd like to give thanks for immigrants who remind us that there's no such thing as boundaries, just a world that belongs to people. And on this day of all saints, I'd like to give thanks to the LGBTQ community who have been afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in their bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible to us. I could go on and on. I think we Christian people should go on and on. The list of saints is long. They are the divorced, the heretics, the sick, the bereaved, the addicted, the developmentally challenged, all speckled, dappled, beautiful human beings through whom hearts and minds are opened 
to the speckled and dappled God in whom we move, breathe, and have our being. Pearl Church, may equity shape our soul. And may the saints all around us continue to demand it from us. Let us pray. On this day of all saints, soften our hearts toward all that is different. Open our eyes to see all of your teachers around us. Help this church to become a more equitable church, opening access to community, daily bread, healing justice, and even God's own self, grieving unfairness and barriers in our society and in our own body, and striving to upend, re-envision, and reconstruct systems in order to foster voice, volition, and access in our world. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.